0: Heavenly Father, let all the other uh, concerns of the world take care of themselves and, and guide them to their proper end as we give ourselves time to sit at your feet. And uh, Father, I pray that the word would be taught under the power and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We address chapter one today. We look at the end of the, the day six and we look at the issue of God creating man in his image, in his likeness. And we come to a conclusion of sorts, at least a stopping point or a a waypoint along this path of studying Genesis, of where the work of the first week of creation is culminating. We read these verses last week. I want to reread them in part because we didn't address all of them. So we're on day six. We're in the middle of day six, verse 26 of chapter one. The Bible says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be for food for you. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made. Or God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So the sixth day begins with animals and ends with the creation of man. And I want you to notice some differences in the way this day proceeds from the previous days. For example, I want you to notice the difference in how man is created. In the text, it's clear that God uses his hands. Now, that is an anthropomorphism, a term that means God in his work, represented in the form of a created being. Hands, in other words. God doesn't have hands. The Father is all uh, spirit. Even the Son, at this point, is pre-incarnate. So there is no literal hand. But by the hand of God, this is being done. So in the way the text uses the word hand, in the way Moses is called by the Spirit to use that terminology we come to understand it as something that communicates a meaning to us. That because God doesn't truly have hands, what's being said there is, in the way God created here, it's done with a different intent or with a different thinking or focus. Emblematic of the use of hands. For example, could God have used his voice to speak man into existence in the same way that he has done every other day of creation up to this point? Of course he could have. Therefore, in the fact that he did it a different way here, in this anthropomorphic way of communicating hands involved in the forming of, God, of man, it begins to suggest God at work in a new way with greater concern, with greater personal involvement, if that were possible, with greater love, greater care. All of that is being communicated by the use of his hands as if he rolled up his sleeves and said, now for this last part, I'm going to do this a special way. And what of the materials God used? Up until this point, from what the text says and from the language in the text, God is creating things ex nihilo, which is a way of saying from nothing. And yet here, clearly spoken in clear terms, God has taken existing material and used it to create something new. That may have been going on all along, don't get me wrong, there is a good argument to be made that the original material of creation was all done at the very beginning and the rest of the story is just him fashioning it into different forms. So be it. That could very well be the case. But even then, if that's true, only now does he actually say that. Only at this stage of the process do we actually see the text specifically mentioning how he took some material like clay and began to form it with hands that don't really exist, but hands in the sense of his care and his attention, all of that points to some different purpose here, some greater purpose in the way he's creating men. But there's another side to this issue of the substance, which we'll come back to later in chapter 3, that becomes supremely important. Man here is made out of the earth itself, out of the existing material of the land mass, specifically the dirt of the ground. In fact, the name Adam means dirt or earth. That difference is critically, supremely important. In fact, it is so important a detail that we were made from the earth that it will determine the course of human history until the kingdom arrives. And it is no less important than that, and I have to let you wait until chapter 3 to find out why. (laughs) Now, when God begins to make man, he begins with this new statement. He says, let us create, let us make. The word for God in Hebrew at this point, in that phrase, is Elohim in the Hebrew that's plural. And then the verb used for create is also conjugated in the plural in Hebrew, which is why you see the translation with the pronoun us, because the phrase in Hebrew communicates a group activity, a group doing a group activity. And so at this stage of the creation, it's already evident that the Godhead is expressed as a plurality, a plurality of some kind, more than one. Later, of course, as scripture goes forward, we learn more and more detail about this God who is us and that we now see three distinct persons. But for anyone who would argue that that is somehow a Christian only perspective and somehow the New Testament was the first time that there was ever any mention in the Bible about a God having three parts, you only have to go back to the beginning of the story of Genesis to find clear evidence in the original Hebrew that there was a plurality in the Godhead. That is certainly not a new concept from the Christian point of view. So this plural Godhead, this us, creates man. The word man, as I said, is adam, literally means earth or dirt. In chapter 1, as we have studied now to this point, we see God creating mankind, male and female, the text said. Mankind. When we get to chapter 2 here today and, and into the future weeks, We'll see that this story is confirmed by chapter two, that on day six, both male and female were created in the same day, at the same moment, more or less. But in chapter two, we're going to find out the details around how that took place. For now, the author is content at this stage in chapter one to simply use the generic man, Adam, but in The way it's clarified, male and female, it's made clear that it's an expression intended to reflect all mankind, not merely one person. Later, of course, chapter 2 fills in the details. Now, the text here says man is created in God's image. What an important phrase. And let's see if we can understand what that means. The word image in Hebrew can also be translated likeness. So it can be created in God's likeness. And the word in or the preposition, the way that verb is actually being translated or conjugated, you could say not created in or uh, created in likeness or created in the image of God. You could say created according to the image or the likeness of God, meaning more like a pattern, more like the way a dress is made from the pattern that precedes it, according to the likeness of God. That detail alone... That fact in the text confirms that God wants to set man apart amongst all that he's done in this week. Because never before, and in no earlier point, have we heard him say that anything in his creation was a pattern of him or in his likeness. This is a unique moment in creation. It's unique in the material. It's unique in the method, hands. And it's unique now in the style or in the outcome. Something that is in God's image or likeness. We've said all along there's a building of, of, of the text to some event. There's a, an obvious ramping up. He's creating food on the ground. He's creating water and air and everything for some purpose and not for its own sake. And then la- last, he brings to life animals with a special kind of life. But last, even later than that, and, and obviously at the height of his process, he brings into being man in his own likeness. All of this suggests that the point in the creation itself was an environment Perfectly suited to the needs of one creature above all the others, and that creature being man. And what sets man apart is this design in which he is like or patterned against God himself. No other creature in the creation has that said about it. That goal itself, the fact that he went to the effort to create the the environment and then put into it a, a creature that's like himself, means that this creature has some special purpose in its existence different than the purpose for everything else, because everything else exists for that man. But then that begs the question, what does man exist for? It's not for the creation. It's not symbiotic. There is a creation created for men, and then there is man created for what? Well, we get the answer by understanding what it means to be created in the likeness or according to the pattern of God. He is about creating a creature with the capacity to know God in a manner similar to the way God knows himself. Consider what that says. A creature with the capacity to know God in a manner similar to the way he knows himself. That's what in his image ultimately means. And there are ways in which we are like God or in his image and there are ways in which we are not. Let's try to list a few just as we go through this moment in the text. First, we are like him or according to him in our ability to exist as God himself exists. For example, we have the capacity to share in many of the same character attributes that God himself embodies. We, we know that God is the author of love. He is the author of grace and of mercy and of charity. These concepts don't exist apart from God himself. And therefore, in a very real sense, he established the reality of those concepts by his own existence. We would not know what love is, but that God himself, by his nature, by his very existence, demonstrates and shows love. He defines it. The definition of love is what God has the capacity to do. And in the fact that we are like or according to God's image, we share in that capacity to a degree. Not to the same degree he has, but to a degree. Furthermore, we can exhibit that to one another. I can show love to another just as God shows it to us. Animals, plants, rocks, they don't have that ability. What they do, they do out of instinct. Out of natural desires to survive and reproduce and live. They don't have the higher functioning that God himself allocates only to men to relate to one another in the way God himself can relate to the creation. So we share in an existence that mirrors God's own nature and character, which is different than the rest of creation. So in the fact that we can exist in the way God himself exists, that's one way in which we are like God. Secondly, we are like God or in in the image of God by our ability to make moral choices or decisions. We can obey or we can disobey authority. Now, if you have pets, and I'm thinking specifically of a couple of very disobedient ones in my home, You might think, well, this is something creation that's shared by the creation as well. But I'm talking now about moral choices, not merely obedience to some expected pattern of behavior. Yes, I can train my dog, or at least theoretically I could train my dog, to do the right thing on command. But when it does the wrong thing, it's not a moral choice. There isn't a conscious awareness of right and wrong coupled with the will to decide to do wrong instead of right, none of that's processing in that little pea brain of the poodle that I have at home. It's really more just a decision of options based on needs and based on instincts. To do what it's been taught to do and maybe seek reward or do what it more instinctively would choose to do instead, conscious of the potential for some kind of, of punishment. These, these, are, these are learned behaviors that can be taught with reinforcement, but they don't rise to the degree of moral decisions. So in the way that God himself can decide in the form of his son, for example, to obey or not obey the father's commands, we, lack, we, we share in that same ability. Then third, our capacity to know and relate to God himself. This is different than the first one. Our ability to exist as God exists doesn't require that I relate to God at all. I can love another person. I can show charity or mercy to someone else. And in that way, I'm sharing in the likeness of God. But that says nothing about how I relate to God himself. That's a third category in which we can be like God. We have intellect. We have reasoning. We have a capacity to worship. And through our life, we can glorify God. If we choose to, if we are given to it. The rest of creation gives God glory, Yes. But it does so merely by its existence. The the mountains testify to the glory of God. The seas testify to the glory of God by just being, by just their design, by their existence. The heavens testify just by their existence. They do not, by their volition or by their will, give worship to God or withhold it. That is something that God has given uniquely to men, the ability to appreciate Him for who He is, intellectually, spiritually, be drawn to him, and then in our collective will, our spirit, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength, respond to him in worship. That is something that only we have the capacity to do in all of his creation. When you add all of this up, all of these qualities that make us in the image of God, you come to a simple statement that I think of as my way of pulling all of that together and quickly explaining how we are in his image. And this is the statement I use. God created us in his image so that we will have a meaningful relationship with him. A meaningful relationship with him. Different than anything else in creation. All of these attributes result in a capacity for a true relationship. A greater degree of relationship, by the way, the Bible says, than even the angels enjoy. Angels long to look upon these things and to have the opportunity that God has had. Hebrews says he does not extend mercy to angels. And, of course, that's a reference to fallen angels. There's no plan of redemption for the fallen angels, only for fallen men. So in that reality of who we are, how we're like God, how we can relate to him and to one another, we see patterns or examples of who God is himself. Now, to put this on the other side of the coin for a moment, In what way are we not like God? You see, for some, the statement means something other than what it really intends. Some take it to mean that we are God. We are an exact duplicate of God. We are clones of God. The Mormon theology believes that every man starts as we have started, but through good works and striving, we can reach a stage of development in in righteousness in which one day we will be rewarded by a God in, in the heavens, by becoming a God who is then given our own universe to rule over. That's their theology. They believe Jesus was a man who, because he was so good, was elevated to be God, and as God, now he rules this world, and if we can mimic him well enough, we'll rise to the same level he is at, only we'll have our own universe to rule over. That's the Mormon theology. But that's not what the term means, obviously. It's not calling us God. It's certainly not equating us with God, and it's not promising us anything with respect to becoming God. That's completely made up. It says more about God than it does about us. It says his it explains his purpose and his desire in why we were even created for a relationship that will glorify him. And in the fact that we have a capacity to do that, we see his purpose in our creation. That capacity is supposed to be realized. By faith in Christ, when we become born again in the family of God, we are then called God's sons. Not before that, only after that. Only those who are by faith in the family of God are called the sons of God. And when we move to that point by faith, we come to share in an even greater portion of His nature. Whatever pattern, whatever example we have of God in our life before we become believers, after faith, we are more like God. We are even more in that pattern. We share in an even greater degree in God's nature through Christ. Paul says it this way in two different places. Colossians 3.9, he says, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to, listen, the image of the one who created him. The renewing of our life, sanctification, which takes place as we devote ourselves to a close walk and a renewed knowledge of God through his word, results in us becoming even closer to the pattern, even more like the image in which we were created. Ephesians, Paul says something similar, but a little differently. Ephesians 4, verse 20 and on, he says, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted, in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And you have been renewed in the spirit of your mind and have put on the new self, which is the likeness, here you go, the likeness of God, having been created in righteousness and the holiness of the truth. So as we come to walk in faith through a growing knowledge of God through His Word, we'll move closer to a state that God actually intended. The the other way to say it is this. Whatever Adam lost in the fall of the garden we are regaining in steps through a renewing of our mind in the word of God and in a walk with the Spirit. We're actually moving closer and closer to the image that was originally in place as he created Adam in his likeness. An image that Christ himself perfectly exemplified when he walked the earth. So now moving forward in the text, God tells us having been created in his image to go out, fill the earth. Well, there's a, a multiplication requirement there. Fill the earth subdue it, and rule over it. Rule over the animals, particularly. The word rule in Hebrew is nada. It means dominion. We have dominion over the animal kingdom and over the world. You know, it doesn't take a theologian to see that, does it? Uh, There's a reason why we are the top of the food chain. Evolutionists would tell you one reason. The Bible gives you the right reason. By God's decree, men were placed... At the supreme top of the creation, we rule the world. All is under subjection to us, at least at the time Adam was created. In the original moment, as he puts man on the earth in the garden, there was nothing to contend with the power of man in the context of creation. Speaking about the physical world, we were at the top of the food chain. and We were at the top of the dominion. A world created for us, a dominion prepared for us, we were placed in it, we were to rule it. And then he says to this ruler, he says, I've given you the world and I've given you the animal kingdom to rule and I've given you all the plants to eat. Do you notice that? All the seeds are there ready, as I said earlier, all the food on the tree ready to be picked. It's all for you. Go eat it. And the animals, similarly, you eat all the plants as well. Now, that raises a couple of interesting questions because today we see animals eating animals. In fact, there's quite a few animals that are only carnivorous. They wouldn't eat a plant generally and they don't survive on plants. But if all the animals were created in this day, and they all exist, then some of those carnivores were back in this day, and yet they're all eating plants. And then, of course, there's the question of men. We're all eating plants, too, and and is that to suggest we're all vegetarians? Why not meat being allowed? In other words, why is it only the plants being offered? Well, consider what it would require for us to eat meat. Or for an animal to eat another animal. What is absolutely required for that to happen? Death. Something's going to die. You can start eating it while it's alive, but you won't get very far. It's going to be dead before you're done. True? I mean, that's the absolute physical reality of eating meat. Meat is a living object. It's not uh, created apart from that. This goes to the question or to the issue we raised last week of kai nefesh. This unique quality to animal life that is different than any other kind of living organism. It is a death when that kind of animal or that kind of creature ceases to function. It is a death, different than when a plant ceases to function. That's not death in the same sense. And so if God had permitted eating of meat by an animal or by man, he would have been instituting, inevitably instituting, death. But here you see clearly that is not in God's plan. That the concept, the idea of a death of something that has kinefesh of is not by God's decree, at least not at this point, and not his ultimate design for creation. Remember how we look back at the earlier days of creation and we said that when we jump forward in time to a new heavens and new earth in which there is no sin, in which everything is restored to its perfect, perfect state as God intends it, in that earlier time, or in that later time, there will no, no longer be death, no longer be sin. So that is his ultimate end. When he eventually goes back to recreating and starts with a new heaven and new earth, he will again institute no death. That is God's preferred desired state. And as you see it here, it's the way he started the first world as well. But with the introduction of this fact, and by this fact I mean there is no death in the original creation. We come to the end of six days, no death. And nor will there be any death if it were left to just go on in the way it was designed. No meat, therefore, vegetarians only, therefore. That fact nails the last nail in the coffin of any alternative theory of creation that is based on or in some sense connected with evolution. And in particular, I'm thinking of some of the ones we've talked about here already, like the day-age theory. Remember the day-age theory? These days are long periods of time. The thinking being that that gives time for evolution to do its thing. Or any other theory that would work from that same point of view. Those theories, and I'll talk just generally about all of them under the title of evolution, they all not only require death in order for the theory to work, they celebrate it. Death is the secret sauce Death is the instrument of improvement. Death is what makes evolution work. It's the penalty that a weak organism pays for not being able to adapt, for not moving up into higher and higher states of capability, of evolving. The penalty is death. Weak die out, the survival of the fittest. That basic concept drives evolution. So if you were to marry the belief at any level, even to some minimal degree, in what the scientific world says about evolution, you come face to face here with an immediate and irreconcilable contradiction. Either the world began with small, simple creations, small creatures, small organisms, and over long periods of time they became more and more complex through a process called survival of the fittest. And if so, there was death from the very beginning. Death and death and death and death and death until someday down the road, man appeared as the product of millions of years of death. Refining and correcting and driving the process of evolution. Or, or, you come to the biblical record and you say, all animals all birds, all fish, all land creatures, and man himself were all fully formed and present and functioning on the earth before anything died. One is true, and they are not irreconcilable. They are not reconcilable. They cannot be brought together. There's no way. Furthermore, and we'll look at this in the evolution versus creation discussion that I keep uh, promising. Furthermore, your reason to be a Christian to believe in Christ, to to trust in a death on the cross, the reason to believe in that is completely and and utterly destroyed if you believe death came before sin. If you believe death as a concept, and I don't just mean for man, I mean for any organism, if death itself is a natural byproduct of the world that God created, it is not the consequence of one man's sin in the garden, then the reason to believe in a Messiah completely goes away. And I'll explain why out of Scripture when we get to that evolution versus creation discussion. But that's how radical this notion is. To any Christian who would propose that there is a way to reconcile what we see and hear in the scientific and secular world with what we see in the Bible, to that one person, I simply move them to the book of Romans and a couple other places, and I explain to them that the reason that Jesus came and died on the cross was to do away with the penalty of death for sin. But if death is natural, then I don't need a Messiah because I don't have a problem because there's nothing to fix. It's that foundational to the Christian walk. And I'll show you more when we get to that stage of the teaching. For now, I want you to listen to one thing Paul says in Romans 5.12 through 5.14. He says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. Wordy, but Paul essentially is saying the cause of death was one man's sin. And the proof of that is in the way it spread to all men because all have sinned. To the evolutionist, death isn't the result of sin. Death is a natural byproduct of life. To the theologian, I now see no reason to believe in someone who promises to do away with the penalty of death. It's a neither or. So, day six is finished. We have the completion now of a filling of the land space. So, if you have your chart, that's where you've already gone, I know. Man is a part of day six because we share in much that the animal world itself has in the way it was created. We have a very similar organ structure. We have a very similar skeletal structure. We have uh, a very similar nervous structure. We are bipedal. We walk on the same physical earth in the same way that animals do, whether it's four legged or two legged or whatever. We don't fly. We don't swim and breathe underwater. We don't share in the other days. We are very much like land animals in a physical sense. So this is the natural day in which God would create the kind of body He gave to us. If men had been designed in God's providence to breathe underwater and to swim like fish, I guarantee you the way the days of creation would have been structured, the sixth day would have been the day he filled the water and we would have been the last sea creature created. But as it turns out, he decided we would walk on the ground and breathe air, and so here we are, sharing that same space with the other, with the other land animals. But we, share, we do not share with them the same spirit. We have an entirely different spirit, one that is in the image of God. Let's move into chapter 2 and finish the week. Interestingly, the last day of the week moves to chapter 2, doesn't it? Kind of interesting division. Chapter 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. So the heavens and the earth were complete, everything in them. Quick reminder, what word heavens here, which, which of the heavens must he be referring to when he says it was all completed and done on this day? Which heavens have been described in the week? Well, we know at least two, right? There is the air, the birds fly in. And then there was the space that held the sun, moon and stars. Has there been any description of him creating in this time the throne room of God, the third heaven? It's never come up. So it is not evident in the discussion of chapter one. And therefore, it's not logical to conclude in chapter two that he's talking about that heaven. He's only talking here about the physical world and the universe that holds it. So he is now finished, and of course he rests. He rested on the seventh day. Now, why do we have chapter 2? Before I look at the text we just read, let's just ask a fundamental question. Don't we have everything we need? Haven't we just covered the creation story? Can't we move on? And yet, if you know the story, if you've read ahead, if you've read Genesis, you know that we're going to go through another chapter, uh, chapter 2, in which the story of creation is going to be revisited. And that's the first thing to understand. It's a revisiting of the material in chapter 1, particularly of day 6. Day 6. Some would come to this chapter, and I think this, when I say some, I'm referring largely to unbelievers, critics of the Bible, even some who call themselves Christian but for whatever reason never really understand the text. They just like to pick it apart. Um, they would say that this is a second account of the creation. And they therefore maintain a different author. The typical line of thought is this. Someone wrote chapter 1. It's a myth. It's a story. Cute way to sort of explain morals and, and just to talk about God. And then there was a competing story going on in the same time among tribal peoples about how the world began. And that story is captured by a different author in chapter 2. And so when the Bible was put together, all these myths were just collected and they put one myth in chapter 1 and a different myth in chapter 2. That's how you'll sometimes hear it described. Of course, that view is not only wrong, it's not even very good scholarship when you look at the text because it's not hard to see how the two pieces fit together if you're even trying. Day day 6, the day in which man is created is such an important day for God in the course of all that he was doing that week that it deserved a lot more discussion around male, female, created? Really? How did that happen? Well, let me tell you. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a zooming in, detailed discussion around how one thing happened on chapter 1, day 6. He doesn't really go through all of the animals again. He just goes through the creation of man with then the elaboration on how From there, he created a companion. From there, the companion of animals wasn't sufficient, so he moved to a new companion. You know, animals are in there along the way, but it's really more a discussion around the events of man, which further proves that the whole point is man. We're the subject of this entire story. Now, this also gives me a chance to highlight something that will become very important to studying Genesis as we go forward, a style or a pattern that Moses follows continually through the book. My way of calling it or referring to it is the zoom in, zoom out pattern. He'll do this continually through the book. And what I mean by it is this. He will cover large periods of time in a rather brief period of the text, maybe one chapter. He may cover 5,000 years, 3,000 years in a chapter. High level, right? You can't cover that much time without just bouncing along on the high points. Virtually no detail available if you're moving at that speed. You're at the 30,000-foot level just flying over it. But some of those events are, are very important. Not all of them. Not everything that happened in the last 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 years is worth elaborating on. But there are some key moments, right? What about the key moments, Moses? Tell us more about those. Well, what he does after he does the flyby at 30,000 feet is he goes back into some of those events and pulls out key ones and talks at length about those, the zoom-in part of the text. And the zoom-in might be 10 chapters or 12 chapters to cover 25 years, so that we understand how important those events were to God's purpose. Then, following that, he'll go back up to 30,000 feet, and he'll jump over some more time. But just understand, those jumps and those zoom-ins overlap. So he'll cover the large span of time first, then he'll come backward in time and talk about this event, and then this event, and then this event. And then move forward to the next section. That's the zoom in, zoom out pattern. Here's your first example of it. In chapter one, we covered seven days on the clock, getting into the beginning of chapter two for the seventh day, right? Now, as we move forward in the text of chapter two, we're actually going backwards in time, aren't we? We're going back to day six, so that day six gets a lot of extra treatment. That's an example of the zoom in and zoom out. Then he'll begin moving forward in time again with chapter 3 and so on. And you'll see that over and over and over again. When you see that pattern, it makes it much easier for you to follow what you're reading and to appreciate what's significant from what is, let's say, less significant. Moses himself sort of showing us that by how he treats the text. Now, chapter 2, we're going to spend the rest of today with the time we have looking at this subject of the Sabbath day, this idea that God rested. One of the most misunderstood concepts in Christianity for some reason. And yet the text makes it very clear. So let's see if we can come to a real clear understanding of what it's go- what's going on here and how it relates to the Sabbath as we consider it today. First, it says, God rested. Was he tired? Pooped? Worn out? Woo, that's a lot of work. i got to lay down. No. I mean, we don't even think of it, right? That's silly to even suggest that God himself could be tired. And the word itself doesn't suggest that. The word for rest, Shabbat, from which we get Sabbath, it means to end, to bring to an end, to cease, to bring to cessation something. Not rest in the sense of lie down and catch up on your sleep or your strength. It means rest meaning stop. Come to a rest. I think of it more like The way a plane, as it's landing, is going from fast to slow to taxiing. And then finally, you know how they they, they put the big things up in front of the pilot to tell him. And then it just sort of stops. That's what we mean by coming to a rest, coming to a, a stopping point. That's what it means. He rested. But maybe the better question is, why? He doesn't need to cease any more than he needs to recuperate. Why is it, and, and more than just ceasing, I mean, sooner or later he has to finish what he's doing and the work ends, that much is obvious. But then he stops doing anything else, it appears, for, for a whole day. He literally stays at that moment of cessation for a day. Now, he certainly didn't need to do that. I mean, there's no reason to make that effort. Except what? Except that it's a particularly pointed method of, by God or a particularly pointed effort to make a statement. To, to say something to us by the fact that he did this to make a point to us, to set an example. So how is he making an example for us? What's the point of God stopping everything for one day after he finished creation? Well, that lets us go a little deeper into the Bible to talk about the Sabbath for a minute. The first place you find this coming up, by the way, and and I should say in passing, there is absolutely nothing in the text to ever suggest that Adam, in his day, was ever given a commandment to observe The Sabbath. If you were to propose that that were true, you're making it up for yourself. In other words, you're creating that truth for yourself because the Bible itself never proposes that at all. It proposes only that God ceased on this day and that that's the end of it. No statements about the Sabbath, no direction to Adam to do anything with it. It's just at this moment, a point was being made by God. The first time you actually see it come up in the lives of men is in Exodus in the giving of the law, of the Ten Commandments, which we would probably all know very well if you were to think about, well, yeah, the Sabbath, it's one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? It's, in fact, a very important one. Exodus 20, verse 8, speaking to the nation of Israel, in those commandments, God says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Later in Deuteronomy, as he repeats the law, Moses says in Deuteronomy 5.15, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out of there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. And therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to observe the Sabbath. So that adds some extra detail that you may not have known if you only looked at the Exodus account and the Ten Commandments. There are two reasons why we have a Sabbath given to the nation of Israel. One, because in the way God rested, he set a day apart by his own example, and now he commands them to follow that example. And then secondly, because he, ex- he extricated them from Egypt, he, by his own hand, by his own power, pulled them out of Egypt and rescued them, that now becomes the second reason they are to observe a Sabbath day in commemoration of the way the Lord, it says, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, brought you out of Egypt. So those are the two reasons why the Jews are commanded to observe the Sabbath. Now, according to Scripture, according to Scripture, these are commandments for who? For the Jewish people, for Israel. There is no time anywhere in Scripture, least of all the New Testament, when this commandment is ever spoken to for any Gentile, much less the church. That's it. That's the answer. There is no time in Scripture when this law, taken out of the commandments given to Israel, is ever applied to any outside of Israel. It is a commandment for Israel alone. And the reasonings, particularly the second one, are unique to Israel, that they were pulled out of uh, the land of Egypt. In fact, I would argue that if a Christian says, well, Steve, this is always intended for everyone, then I would go back and I would say, well, you know, they're also commanded to keep the Passover every year because they were taken out of Egypt. Are you doing that one too? They're also commanded to keep uh, a whole host of other feasts in commemoration of things God did for them over the course of their history. Are you doing all of those too? Why pick one? What makes you think this one is any more applicable than any of the other ones? Except that somebody perhaps taught you that. We know that God doesn't tell Adam to do this. We know he has not told anyone before this moment, not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob. They never see of any moment a command to keep the Sabbath. They never do that, as far as we can tell in Scripture. God's rest was not a physical rest, right? God is spirit only. His rest was not physical in nature. It was just a stopping of his work. Therefore, the Sabbath's ultimate purpose is not about providing us with physical Rest. I think it's often funny how people often turn this and say, well, you know, God told us to rest because he knew if he didn't, we wouldn't. We'd just work, 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 work. Really? Really? Is that our biggest problem? Think about it. Is that our biggest problem? Men just won't take rest unless they're ordered to do it? We're that industrious? Our, Our character is that good? We never slough off? We never take a day off? Thank goodness we have the Sabbath day or we never rest? That doesn't even make sense. We all know ourselves. It's the other way around. If we weren't commanded to go to work, we'd sit on our rear all day. The logic doesn't make sense. The scripture is not there. It's not about the physical rest. The example, in other words, is not God saying, hey, you guys need to take a break once in a while. Watch me. There, go do that. That wasn't his point, was it? That's not the reasons he gave. The ultimate purpose is not physical rest. You could use a comparison to, to, to see the point. What's the ultimate purpose of water, baptism? Is it because we're dirty and we need a bath? In other words, is the physical act itself the point? Or is it picturing something in the spiritual? Obviously, baptism pictures something in the spiritual. Similarly, the day of rest that was commanded for the nation of Israel was a physical observance, yes, but not for the sake of a physical rest any more than water baptism is for the sake of washing dirt off your skin. It's a physical act to picture a spiritual reality. So if there is a physical act of rest, of ceasing, that's supposed to take place once a week in the nation of Israel, then we get to the most important question. Now we're close to really understanding the Sabbath because we ask the question, what is the spiritual picture that is being created by this corporate observance of a physical rest? We know it's not about the physical, it's about the spiritual. What's the spiritual picture, God, that you are building through this commandment that you gave Israel? What are they picturing for us? What's the point we're supposed to get? Well, first, I want you to consider we have been saved and transformed by Christ, by faith in Christ. Correct. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then he says this. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. Do you notice the direction there? He reconciled us through Christ. We didn't reconcile ourselves. We didn't decide to join his party. He reconciled us. First thing to note. Second thing to note is, Scripture says that the reconciliation we we obtain in that way is the result of a work that God himself did on our behalf. Hebrews 10.11 says it this way, Every priest stands daily, ministering, offering, time after time, the same sacrifices which can never take away sin, but he, Christ, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Sat down at the right hand of the Father, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. God did the work of our salvation when Christ, having kept the law perfectly, went to the cross on our behalf. That made possible God reconciling us to himself. So far, how much have we done? Zip. We're still at zero. He's done all the work so far. He designed the plan. He did the work of living a sinless life instead of us. He did the work of sacrificing himself on the cross. He then stepped into our lives through grace and elected us into that belief and brought us into the family of God. He's done it all. Where are we? We're still sitting at zero. We've done Zippo. That's the meaning of grace. We are simply the beneficiaries of all that work, are we not? After, now notice what Hebrews said, after God did all that work of redemption, what did he do? Sat down. He rested. He rested he rested or he ceased from the work of redemption, having done once for all. The next verse in Hebrews says this, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now let's look at that in comparison to the Sabbath. God did all the work of creation. We didn't do any of it, right? He did it all. We did nothing to assist. We were just the beneficiary. Once he was done creating, he rested. So... The work on the cross and the work of creation are being compared here. One is a picture of the other. We are the beneficiaries of God's work if we trust in the faith that God allows. And then in that relationship, we rest in His work. That's why you may hear a pastor say sometimes, every day is a Sabbath for the Christian. He means that literally. When before we may have been working and striving, trying to earn something that we couldn't possibly earn, even though we were trying... Now, knowing the grace of the gospel, I've stopped that kind of work. I'm not working to earn anything for God. I'm not working to earn my salvation. I know I already have it by his work, not mine. He's rested after he did the work of salvation. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. When I come to faith in Christ, I join him in that rest. I stop working too. But it's a perpetual rest. It never goes away. It's a once and for all work that saves me once and for all, and I can rest in it once and for all. I'm in my Sabbath right now in that sense of the word. Spiritually, the Sabbath is a picture of my rest in faith in Christ, resting from the works of salvation. And he says, I want a Sabbath day in the nation of Israel so that I can show you what it's like to have an incomplete rest. Because what happens after the Sabbath? You've got to go right back to work. And not much of a rest, is it? Not a very satisfying one. Only last a day, bam, I've got to get up the next morning and go right back to work. That didn't feel very satisfying. But when I rest in Christ, all of that nonsense stopped. And now I rest in Him without any fear that I have to wake up the next morning and start working again. That's the picture. The Sabbath was given to picture the rest we have in Christ. He is our Sabbath. So just as all the law pictures Christ one way or another, the sacrifice, the bread, the holy place, and so on, likewise, just the Sabbath day itself is a picture of Christ. But once you've come to know the true living Lord and you've rested in Him for your salvation, you don't need the picture anymore. The, The Sabbath day itself is a picture of the greater. Once I have the greater, I don't need the lesser anymore. So you can work seven days a week, or you can rest seven days a week if you have that option, but you don't have to think of it in spiritual terms anymore. Once you accept Christ, you've rested in the way that matters most. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for our time in the Word, for the chance to study and understand these truths. Continue to inform us and open our minds to see this as it should be seen. Guide our use of it as we teach and talk to others and give an example of the hope that is within us. Help us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. and Bring us back next week to finish and complete chapter 2. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.